the passage that's just been read uh, for us. A little PS to the interview earlier. One of the uh, definite downsides from my point of view um, of, of moving away from pastoral ministry into counselling is that I won't be preaching to the same people week in, week out. The people on the other end of that are very happy. But uh, for me, that's something I'll miss. But, but there's, a, there's a flip side to that for me, and that is that I'm able to come and visit more churches like this. So it's great to, to be freer to be able to, to come to other churches. So I'm glad to be with you uh, today. Now, as you can see uh, from the screen, my title this evening is How God's Work Moves Forward. Fact of life, isn't it, that we, we're always looking forward. Uh, here we are uh, into this new year, what, seven weeks already, two months nearly over uh, of, of a new year. And we're looking forward and perhaps we're thinking, you know, how's this year going to turn out? We may have children or grandchildren and we're thinking, you know, they're developing and growing up. We may have some concerns, some hopes, some dreams for them. Or there may be within your own home situation, some tensions within marriage or, or wider family, uh, job uncertainties that you might be facing, health concerns that, that you might be uh, wondering about. Uh, and as a church, a church is always moving forward, but is it moving forward always in a healthy way? You know, we may have concerns uh, about church and um, be wondering where things uh, are going, what will this year bring? Better, though, would be to ask the question, what is God going to bring? Because a year doesn't bring anything, does it? A year is just time. It, it, it takes place, it happens, but it doesn't bring us anything. But God most certainly does. He's in charge. He is the one who has predestined, Ephesians 1.11 says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, indicating that nothing is outside of his detailed control. As we saw this morning, uh, not even a sparrow will fall to the ground, according to the Lord Jesus, apart from it being our Father's will, Matthew 10 and verse 29 says. Now, looking at Genesis 42 this evening, this, this is a significant turning point in God moving his work forward amongst his people. Things have been trundling along for a long time at this point. If you flash back through Genesis, you remember back to, to chapter 12 where God chose one man and said that out of him, would be created a great nation uh, and that actually beyond that all the nations of the earth would be blessed soon after making that promise to Abraham uh, God also indicated that they would be enslaved and mistreated in the future before forming a nation in the promised land the land that Abraham then lived in but they'd be away and then come back. But in the middle, there'd be a 400-year period that will be uh, in Egypt. But they've not even moved into that period of enslavement 
or mistreatment yet. They've not got down to Egypt. As this chapter begins, only one of the family is down there, Joseph. And he didn't want to be there, did he? He was sold as a slave who was taken down there against his will. But he was the only one down there. The rest of the family is still up in Canaan. And they think he's dead. Well, Jacob does. His, his father does. His brothers know otherwise. But they're keeping that uh, a tightly guarded secret. Uh, and, and actually about 220 years have passed. So it's been a long time since the original promise to Abraham to this point. 220 years Basically, not much has happened. 400 years is predicted for the time when they will be enslaved in Egypt. That's not started uh, yet. And things are just trundling along. Joseph, though he arrived in chains, is now basically prime minister of the nation. God has done a great thing there. But the rest of the family, the so-called nation, it's just a big extended family at the moment, um, are back up in Canaan. But it's this chapter, it's the events of this chapter that, that trigger them to all come. Ten of the brothers come initially, uh, and then that comes to the one other brother plus Jacob coming down later on. God's work is moving forward. But we can look at this chapter through the lens then of how does God do this? How does God move his work forward? And I think there are several things we can see uh, from this chapter. First of all, we will see that it's by his promises, not our plans. By his promises, not our plans. Particularly focusing on verses 1 through to 9 here. You see, the famine strikes the entire region, including Canaan as well as Egypt. If you know much about the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, you'll know that he was able to interpret the king's dreams that indicated there would be seven good years followed by seven bad years. Well, we're into the seven bad years, about two years into that at this point in time. Uh, and that famine hasn't just been for Egypt, but for the whole region north of there as well. So up to Canaan, where Joseph came from and where his family still are. But there is grain in Egypt because God took Joseph down there. He was able to interpret those dreams and advise that in the seven good years, they needed to be careful and make the most of those seven good years by storing away plenty of grain so that there would be food in the seven uh, bad years. And so we read in verses one and two, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So he's saying to his sons, what are you messing about at? Why just looking at one another? Get down there into Egypt, go and buy some grain. But his plan was that neither he nor Benjamin would go down with the other ten sons. Verse 3 says, So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, 
with his brothers. Fill in the detail there. Joseph has 11 brothers, but there are four mothers connected to these 12 brothers overall. It's only Joseph and Benjamin that were born to Rachel. So they are full brothers. The rest are half brothers. That's the distinction that's being made there. So Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's full brother, with his half-brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So what do you think about the other ten? He's not learned a lot about favoritism yet, has he? This was the problem back with Joseph in Joseph's time back home, but now he says, you ten go on and look after him. I don't want any harm to come to him. They, They won't have missed that point, will they? He hasn't learned a thing about favoritism. Thus, verse 5, the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. So they take this journey of about 250, 300 miles, probably take something in the region of six weeks. And then we come to verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. They bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food and Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them I bet he did do you remember them they were the dreams that caused the problem when Joseph was back home he had one dream that they're out in the field and there are 12 sheaves of corn and 11 bowed down to one And he understood this as the indication of God that one day his 11 brothers would bow down to him. In my reading of that, that was God's indication of what would happen. That was prophetic. That did not mean Joseph had to tell his brothers. You don't need to tell everybody everything you know. Sometimes that's not wise. But he went and told them and they were furious. Then he has another dream. And this time there are 12 stars and the sun and the moon And 11 stars plus the sun and the moon bow down to one star. He sees it. He knows he's the star that everyone else bows down to. And what does he do? He goes and tells his brothers and his mum and his dad. And they're not too happy. He doesn't learn quickly. Uh, Joseph doesn't. But you can imagine. 22 years roughly have, have passed. And he, he, since he'd been given these dream promises, surely he can hardly believe it that suddenly, out of the blue, you know, he got up that morning, it was just another morning in sunny Egypt, selling grain to the people, making money uh, for the king. And suddenly, out of the blue, his brothers arrived, 10 of them anyway. And the first thing they do is they bow down to him. Two dreams. They would bow down to him. Yes, he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. It could, it could be overwhelming. Surely he could hardly believe his, his eyes. They walk up to him. They don't recognize him. That's not surprising. 
22 years have passed. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He speaks like an Egyptian. He's got the Egyptian language uh, down to a T now. They, they don't recognize him. They wouldn't expect that the man that they sold as a slave would become the, the prime minister of the nation. How shocking for him. When he'd last seen them, these brothers would have rather killed him than have bowed down to him. But now they bow down to him. 22 turbulent years later, with no sign of change, no warning that this is going to happen, they arrive and bow down. Let's be clear, this was nobody's plan but God's. God's work moves forward by his promises, not our plans. God had made the promises. Everything looked to be in chaos. There was no sign of this being fulfilled, but God had got it sorted. He moves his work forward. Despite Joseph, despite his brothers, he moves his work uh, forward. This is, this is God at work. You can imagine the sense of joy that Joseph would have had, not to get one over on his brothers, but the joy of seeing God at work, fulfilling the promises made to him some 22 years earlier. This God has not changed. This God is our God. This God, of whom it says in Joshua 21, 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And in Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill of course he will. If he said it, he'll do it. If, he's, if he has spoken, he will fulfill his word. And how does he do it in this situation? Well, clearly by his sovereign rule over this whole situation. He, 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 he moves the, the, the weather so that they have seven good years, following, followed now by the initial uh, start of, of the seven bad years. But he also moves in the hearts and minds of, of people. Uh, the, the situations that have led Joseph to be the prime minister, the situation where Jacob says, brothers, what are you doing? Just uh, looking at one another, get down there and go and buy some grain. God moves his word work forward by his promises, not by our plans. That doesn't mean we shouldn't make plans. It's okay to make plans and seek to achieve Good things for God's glory. But whatever good is achieved, let us remember that it is his work ultimately. And that any blessing, any success we see is because of his grace and his goodness. It's not our plans, it's his promises that prevail. Psalm 60 Verse 11 and 12 says, Oh, help us against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man, any of us. Vain is what we can do. With God, though, we shall do valiantly. 
It is he who will tread down our foes. And the reality of life, personal life, church life, is that often God works despite us, despite the sins of Joseph, his brothers, Jacob. God works his way through it all and fulfills his purposes. And the promise that the Lord Jesus made, that he would build his church, in such a way that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that promise will be fulfilled. He will keep his word. He will move and frequently, despite our plans, we may want to do this and that and the other and God may bless those activities, but also he may work just outside of the parameters that we have in mind, and do his own thing to his glory. God's work moves forward by his promises, not by our plans. Secondly, we see that he, work, he moves his, way for, his work forward by repentance, not remorse. Now we're focusing on verses 9 through to 22. By repentance, not remorse. Getting into the story further, we see that Joseph doesn't reveal his identity to his brothers. As we've said, that probably wasn't hard for him, but he certainly play acts the part of this harsh leader who accuses them of coming to, to spy. He treats them harshly, slams them into prison. Why? You might initially think, well, revenge is sweet, isn't it? You know, he's had 22 years to dwell on what these brothers have done to him. Maybe he could have imagined this. I very much doubt it that he could have imagined this, but here we are. You know, he, 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 you could read it initially as though he, he just pounces on the situation to get his own back on his brothers and slams them into prison, give them, give them a taste of, of their own medicine or something like that. But when we see him giving orders to fill their sacks, indicating probably more grain than they paid for, and then to return the money that they'd used to pay for the grain, to return that money into their sacks, as verse 25 indicates, it's clear this is not, not the case. He's not being cruel to his brothers. There's more to it than that. It's more subtle. What we see as the story goes on, and some of this only becomes clear as we go through following chapters, and I'll give uh, a bit of indication of that without too many spoilers, but Joseph wants to know their hearts. He wants to know if there's been any change in them. He wants to know if they feel bad about the past what they did to him, and more particularly, what they did to their father. For 22 years, their father has grieved the death of his favorite son, Joseph. When the brothers know full well that he is not dead, they didn't care about that, though. They'd been cruel to their father for all of those years. And, and here's the key, key point as, as we see the story developing. He, he leaves them in prison stewing for three days, tells them to go home, leaving one of them behind in order to fetch the missing brother 
so that he can ascertain whether or not uh, they are being honest. That's verses 18 uh, through to 20. And he hears them then speaking, and of course they're speaking in their language, thinking he can't understand them. And verse 21 says, Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben said, answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But he did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. So he hears great sorrow from these, from his brothers recognizing their guilt, thinking that they are being judged because they are guilty. And you might think, surely now he's going to say, it's me. You're talking about me? It's me. I'm, I'm Joseph. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He lets this all play out. The plan, you see, is not complete yet. Why doesn't he immediately reveal who he is at this point? Well, what he has heard from his brothers at this point is remorse, not repentance. Remorse. And there is a huge difference. There can be remorse, a sadness, a sense of guilt, a sense of things are turning out badly because we've been found out, because God has found us out and God is, is, is judging us for this. And there can be huge remorse. But repentance is more than that. Repentance includes remorse, but it is more than that. As Ezekiel 18 and verse 30 defines repentance. Repent and turn from all your transgressions. Repentance includes a turning from your transgressions. And he wants to see if they're going to turn from their transgressions or whether they'd be willing to do exactly the same again. Sacrifice one brother for the rest of them, for the rest of their freedom. Would, would they be willing to, to do that? Will they repeat their former sin? That's what he doesn't know yet. He knows they are remorseful about the past. He does not know whether they are repentance. That is a lesson here. And I would suggest it is a key lesson because the Bible is incredibly skilled at compacting history into relatively few pages. And yet there's chapter after chapter after chapter of Genesis devoted to the playing out, the unfolding of this story. Why? Because it matters. Because it really, really matters. That there is a huge difference that, need, that, that Joseph is needing to unearth, that God cares about the huge difference between remorse and repentance. God's work moves forward by repentance, not remorse. Because God's way is always the bent knee way. It's the way of repentance, of a turning from sin. And it's still true. 
for us individually, for us as a church, God's work only moves forward by repentance, not remorse. We may feel bad about things we've said, done, how it's impacted others, but are we repentant? Are we changed? Are we turning from that sin? That's the key. And then thirdly, we see that God's work moves forward by sensitivity, not sin. So picking up the reading again at verse uh, 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. He turned away from them and wept. Even though what he's heard so far only indicates remorse and repentance, he knows it's really important to see whether they've actually changed, whether they are really repentance, repentant, he cannot hold his emotions in any longer. He turns away from them and weeps. This man has lived through being thrown into a hole in the ground by his brothers and initially left for dead. Then seeing them change their minds and thinking, rather than let him die, we may as well make some money out of him and sell him as a slave to go down uh, into Egypt. Then he's got a job with Potiphar who works for the king, but then he's falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison, languishing there despite his innocence for years. Then somebody whose dream he again interprets says he'll mention to the king that I've met a man in prison who's innocent, but that man just forgets about him. He, he languishes further. Remember that prisons in those days were not well serviced, did not have TVs. Uh, they were pretty grim places. He's there for years. He's lived through all of that and yet he comes to this. He hears the remorse of his brothers and he weeps. And I will give a spoiler that when you read through the rest of Genesis, this turns out to be the first of eight occasions when Joseph weeps. There is a sensitivity about this man. He does not subscribe to the idea that big boys don't cry. And the importance of this is seen not only because this is the first of eight times that he weeps, but it's in such a sharp contrast to his brother's sinful insensitivity towards him in the past. I mean, do you notice the detail? This is the first time we're told this in the account of Genesis in verse 21. They, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. Can you imagine him down in that pit? Or maybe as he's being sold as a slave, he's begging his brothers for mercy. He's begging them not to do this. And we did not listen. This was sinful insensitivity. Add to that a detail that we do already know from the account in Genesis, back in chapter 37 and verse 25, and that is when they first cast him into the pit for him to die. They were so insensitive that all they did was go off and have lunch. Imagine doing that. Imagine doing that. Throw your brother into a pit to die and go and have lunch. That's what the brothers were like. There was no agony in them apart from the one brother 
Reuben, who actually at that point was hoping to find some way to get Joseph uh, released. So see the, see the contrast, the, the sharp contrast. God is spotlighting that contrast because it matters in his kingdom. Sensitivity matters. Hardness, harshness is not praised in the Bible. But sensitivity is, and God is highlighting that here in the narrative of Joseph's life and the dealings with his people at this point uh, in time. And Joseph here stands alongside some great men of God, Abraham, David, Elisha, Job, for men who were sensitive, men who wept. And of course, Jesus who at the grave of his friend Lazarus wept, who when he stood over the city of unrepentant Jerusalem wept. This is what God values. God values sensitivity. And his work amongst his people moves forward by sensitivity, not sin and not sinful insensitivity. What God values is described like this in Romans 12 and verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that in no way is, is giving us the kind of uh, mechanical idea that we can enter into a situation, into a conversation with a person. And if they are weeping, we can flick the switch of weeping and we can just come out with a bit of weeping. Or if somebody's really happy, we can flick another switch and rejoice with them. No, that this is a resonance, a connection, a sensitive connection between one human being and another. When one suffers, we suffer with them. When they are blessed, we rejoice with them. And before you use verse 24 as an excuse to hide your tears, you notice it says, then he turned away from them and wept. Remember that Joseph had a particular reason to hide his tears, and that was to conceal his true identity from them at this point in time. There isn't usually that kind of reason. We're not called to secret weeping. We are called to... Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Good for us to set out to be a church, a family of God's people, who are truly sensitive, where there is a heart resonance between you as a church, so that there is rejoicing with those who rejoice and a weeping with those who weep. So that you're a church family that love one another deeply, care for one another deeply. Where there is that sensitivity by which God's work moves forward. Let's pray together.